Okay, hello everyone and welcome to Actus Radio, the nation's only radio program dedicated to the clinical documentation improvement profession. Actus Radio is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and Actus. Today, Wednesday, October 25th, marks our 81st program. So I'm going to go ahead and abbreviate things a little bit today. We have with us um, at right, as you can see, Sam Antonios uh, from Via Christi Health in Wichita, Kansas. So Sam um, has had the, 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 the great experience of having the uh, Joint Commission visit his hospital today, and he needs to be off this program in about 15 minutes. So we're going to go right ahead and jump into the topic, which of course is a sepsis update. Uh, but before we do that, we are going to just quickly do the audience poll, and uh, Laurie and I will be addressing this poll a uh, after our interview with Sam. So we're going to ask you to quickly review this poll, take it, and we will and we will come back to it so we can accommodate Sam's schedule here. But essentially, uh, the poll reads: Have you begun to receive denials for sepsis from auditors using sepsis three criteria? And your options are yes. It's a big problem. Yes, perhaps a few. Uh, no, we haven't received denials based on sepsis three criteria. Maybe you're not sure if you're not working in denials or see the denials directly or not applicable. Again, have you begun to receive denials for sepsis from auditors using the new-ish uh, sepsis three criteria? Yes, big problem. Yes, we a few denials. Uh, no, not receiving denials based on sepsis three criteria, or, or um, not sure, or not applicable. At last, we don't have all of our listeners are not in acute care or or uh, in a place to get denials. So we got about 77% of our audience voting, and we're going to go ahead. So close that out, and we will come back to the uh, poll after our interview with Sam. Um, let's go ahead and close that. All right. Well, thanks, Sam. Again, I appreciate you coming on the show, and especially on a very hectic day uh, for Via Christi uh, in, a, in an unexpected visit. But uh, so we'll go ahead and just jump right into the topic here. Uh, maybe you could just talk a little, start with our audience. What is happening with uh, sepsis at the moment? You know, the show originated because you had sent me a helpful article on the Elsevier website that you wanted to mention. So can you maybe summarize what's happening with um What's that sure. for everyone? <clears throat> yeah, thank you, Brian, and thank you for accommodating my time. And just to uh, you know, mention, this is uh, um, one of, we were in the cycle for our visits from Joint Commission, so there wasn't anything unexpected, although they don't typically tell you when they're going to show up. Um, mm -hmm. The um, um, So uh, last month, September, was actually a national uh, and actually worldwide sepsis month and as a result I think uh, there was a lot of publications around sepsis I think people take the advantage of that month being sepsis month to talk about sepsis and um, interestingly uh, there's a lot of talk about the new definition um, a lot of articles either in dissent or in uh, agreement with uh, sepsis 3 and um, uh, what uh, it has surfaced after the uh, publication of the sepsis 3 definition has been a few studies that we're looking into is it a helpful definition in identifying patients who are at risk of dying and there's actually quite a bit of support for that 
Um, and so you'll find a lot of publications that said yes, if someone has SOFA criteria, and uh, we try to utilize this newer definition that they are at high risk of dying. And I think that comes at no surprise to a lot of physicians. I mean, well, yeah, of course, if you pick criteria of end organ damage and then you decide that that's what sepsis is about, you will have a higher predictive value of um, mortality. Um, and uh, however, uh, there's also been uh, numerous other publications that are saying, well, you know, um, this. Uh, process the new definition we have no problem with and I'll I'll, uh, um, I'll come back to that point a lot of people are saying we don't have a problem with the actual phrase that defines sepsis but we do have a concern about the criteria that have been recommended for use to for you to decide if that phrase of definition is uh, um, is uh, um, a good one or not and uh, that phrase, since I mentioned it, I want to make sure people remember and not be confused by what is the actual definition. Uh, the definition that was brought on by the sepsis three authors is that it is a life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. That's the definition. That's it. It stops there. It's a single phrase that defines sepsis. And that's and I think a lot of people don't have a problem with that per se. Uh, they say, yep, uh, there's an infection. Okay, great. There's a host response dysregulated. That's we're fine with that. Um, and it causes some organ uh, dysfunction. We're okay with that as well. Um, and it uh, could be life-threatening, obviously, and we're okay with that as well. Um, the challenge comes, okay, well, how, how can a physician, a clinician at the bedside, come about to... Um, deciding that that's truly what his or her patient has. And that's where has been the uh, large criticism probably over the last uh, couple of months of um, of using SOFA and particularly using QSOFA or even for septic shock, there's been um, a, a specific criticism of that you need lactic acid in order to diagnose it and uh, in a lot of places where you may not have that available so does that mean you can't diagnose the lactic acid um, well that's not true because the definition of septic shock mm -hmm. is still a clinical one the um, the interesting uh, studies that I'll, and uh, uh, Brian I'll obviously share with you several um, of the articles that I thought were of interest and you can later on post them um, and, and share them um, uh, not the actual content of the article, but at least the, the links of where people might find them. Um, the uh, uh, one, so there's a um, actually a, a physician who works at the Department of Population Medicine at Harvard Medical School and has done lots of publications and good research on um, the topic of sepsis. Uh, and so Re et al. have had lots of publications. A couple of them most recently stand out as being interesting when we're talking about the clinical diagnosis of sepsis and its relationship to how um, things get coded. Unfortunately, um, not a lot of people understand the process of going from seeing a patient, diagnosing, documenting, coding the diagnosis and all the ICD-10 and the other coding guidelines that govern how certain diagnoses arrive um, and how a DRG arrives um, 
and um, and as a result, there has been a perception that perhaps there's an epidemic of sepsis, and that's because a lot of people are assuming or equating administrative data, claims data, which are used for reimbursement, obviously, as epidemiological data, and there really are not. Uh, and we know that there are cases where if there's a high suspicion of sepsis uh, and the physicians um, treat it as such, um, there is no gold standard to truly uh, uh, diagnose it. So it was a clinical diagnosis based on high suspicion, and that gets coded as sepsis, and that's perfectly appropriate. However, um, it has created a significant fluctuation or variation in, in all epidemiological studies looking at the incidence of sepsis. So what uh, these researchers have done is done something very interesting where they looked at um, the incidence and the mortalities of sepsis using just administrative data, so ICD-10 and DRG data. They also devised a way where they looked on the electronic health records into specific criteria that of, uh, of elements within the record, either organ and organ damage or um, other elements that then they use to define sepsis. And they actually did uh, a uh, chart audit of about 500 records to specifically look at the charts. So they had someone looking at those records and they compared the results. And even though the incidence of sepsis in the nation had significantly jumped between 2009 to 2014, when you just use administrative data, it actually has not moved up a lot uh, when you consider uh, EHR-based clinical data. Um, mm -hmm. What Sam, I'm also, uh, sorry. For, go ahead. So I'm, I'm showing the um, article on this is the Elsevier website. This is a for-purchase article, but it is the re-study and Klompa study that I think you might be referring well, to. Yes, so people would like to check that out. It's correct, and there's an accompanying study I should say that was in JAMA. The one that I'm using the data from, also from Reed, they kind of came out at the same time. This one that you're referring to is in uh, Infectious uh, Disease uh, uh, North America, and then there's also a JAMA article. Um, they supplement each other in the information, and so um, the the interesting thing about this uh, these two articles is they do the they kind of go a little bit over the history of sepsis how. The first definitions came about, uh, the second definitions, and interestingly, um, they also identify the shortfalls of the third definition um, and how it could be uh, misleading or it has, short, uh, it has shortcomings based on some of the criteria that were used. One of the big ones is, you know, if you're looking at only what identifies death or um, high risk for death. Well, you're gonna, you, you likely are not gonna find the most helpful clinical tools. Um, so the other, uh, the, the other thing that I'll like to mention, since we're talking about this, um, uh, Brian, is the fact that now a lot of people are going back to talk about the usability at the bedside early on in the emergency department when you're seeing someone um, with suspected sepsis and how you should screen them and uh, what is it that you can do to potentially prevent a life-threatening event. Um, and there, 
a lot of the comments that I have read and articles I have read say SOFA is really not a good criteria to use. And people still, despite this shortcoming and the fact that it's not very specific, uh, nor in some cases is very sensitive, um, uh, the uh, SERS has had its good its uh, good areas of use. Um, however, we do know that it's no longer part of the definition. Uh, and if you'll allow me, Ryan, I'll just take a just one moment to explain why. What's the biggest difference was with SERS several years ago versus now in use in the definition. Prior to the sepsis three, SERS was yeah, actually. I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, so part of the, uh, the several years ago, SERS was part of the definition. So it was an integral part of the definition. You could not have SERS along with an infection and not have sepsis. And that was probably overkill. And I think a lot of people recognize that. So SERS is no longer uh, part of the definition. It is now and should still be used as a as a tool to help guide you to where you towards your definition, which is um, mean which means life threatening organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. We, we really shouldn't be neglected. We certainly still utilize the criteria not to define sepsis but to, as a clinical tool to reach a diagnosis of sepsis. Because if you think about it, if you've got a, uh, the problem with SERS is that it was like a car alarm, it was potentially going off too much, um, but it doesn't mean that a car alarm, it shouldn't no longer exist and we should cancel or remove all car, car alarms from the world. Uh, there will still be helpful if they're utilized in a judicious way when people recognize when it potentially could be a false alarm or not. Um, and uh, and that's the, what the recommendation I've been given here is that we really should utilize everything we can in our toolbox so we can guide physicians um, to know when they should diagnose sepsis as a life-threatening organ dysfunction caused by this, this regulated host response to infection. Sam, I, I know you have a hard stop coming up right away, but is, could you have any parting advice for folks that might be struggling with uh, sepsis three denials? We're going to yes. show the poll. And so, there, uh, there are first of all, that. Uh, let me give you a couple of tips. First of all, I would make sure, and I have seen some of those denials, and sometimes they focus on SOFA, and I will go back and making sure to explain in my appeal that SOFA is not a diagnostic, um, it's, not a, it's not a definitional criteria. It's a tool that has been recommended to use for you to arrive towards your diagnosis, but it is not by itself um, uh, alone without clinical judgment to what needs to be used. And so I will come back to the same definition that I brought that has been Somewhat agreed upon is just how do you how do you how do you have a clinician uh, arrive to their conclusion? They can use multiple tools. They can use part of SERS. They may use a clinical history. They may use the fact that the patient has immunosuppression, which is something that hasn't been mentioned a lot. Um, they also may use uh, criteria out of uh, SOFA. Uh, the other thing that I'll also mention is that we still have to follow the CMS sepsis one or SEP one uh, core measure. Uh, and which still defines 
severe sepsis and septic shock by um, the criteria that still contains elements of SIRS. We can't ignore that. Hospitals cannot ignore that. That's how clinicians are um, utilized. What, that's how actually they got their treatments in the ED and on the floors. So those have to be uh, mentioned. And, and perhaps what the, the, um, the literature that I'll send you might also uh, be helpful to highlight that even though there has been an attempt back in 2016 to redefine sepsis, there is literature that shows that what has been used may not be uh, completely well accepted. Um, there has been still continues to be pros and cons, and we, there are still areas that are gray that you need the clinical judgment to be the adjudicator uh, whenever things are not uh, clear. Um, this, the argument uh, with, uh, with a denial needs to be a clinical argument, and um, along with the fact that you can use some coding guidelines uh, to help you with that. But, but a clinical argument has to be done, and I would also recommend that you obtain the opinion of the attending physician. The attending physician uh, should weigh in and have a conversation about what do they think about those cases so that um, you you're actually getting the source of truth from the physicians themselves who should be up to date on most of the literature. Right. I was just showing Sam a great paper you wrote for us um, with some additional advisory board input back in March. That paper is available on actus.org. I can link to that after the show as well. This is free for Actus members, but certainly anything you can send to me after the show, I'd be happy to post it in the show recording section of the Absolutely. website and people can check it out at their at their uh, leisure there so I know you have to go Sam so if if you do need to go now we we, we can uh, have you drop off we're going to be sharing very the much results. Um, thank you thank you Brian me. thank you appreciate it yep absolutely Bye. all right so again uh, folks if you want to check out this uh, white paper that we have on the website uh, where are we now with sepsis? It is available um, here on the, uh, let me show, ahead and show my screen here. It is available on actus.org under our resource library and under white papers, and you will find it. Um, this was written after, shortly after the new definitions came out and uh, talking about a lot of the things that Sam covered on today's show. But we again, we will be providing you some additional resources um, after the program. Um, before we go to the poll question, Laurie, I know that you, this was just was a blur for all of us. Sam really had to, to bank through a lot of information. But do you have anything to add from your perception, teaching the boot camps, hearing from students in class, and um, um, three, you know, just what? Issues? Yeah, just what Sam was touching on is there are so many different interpretations of the definitions out there, um, and hospitals. Are, are struggling um, to know what, what definitions to adopt. I go to some organizations, they've completely adopted SEP3. I go to others that say they are not using SEP3. And I'm kind of curious to see what the poll's gonna say because everywhere I go, I'm hearing that denials are an issue. So I, I'm, I'm banking on that's what that poll's gonna say when you bring it up. Um, people are just struggling because there's, you know, if we have different definitions used by different organizations, and then there's different physicians within the organizations that have their own interpretations, um, 
you know, where does the CDI and the coder go? So, you know, our suggestion is to work to standardize a definition within your facility that works for your facility to take into account your quality monitors, just as you touched on, um, as well as how how you're um, how you're doing with with the insurance companies and payment. Absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and pull up that um, that poll question, Laurie. So. Uh, I think folks should be seeing it now. Um, again, we asked, have you begun to receive denials for sepsis from auditors who are using that sepsis three criteria? So 15% say it's a big problem. 16% uh, um, are saying yes, a few problems. 15% are saying no denials, but 48%, but almost half of our audience are not sure. Uh, and 6% yeah. not applicable. What are your thoughts here, Laurie? I, I, I know that CDI is not always involved in denials, denials management. This this seems to point to that, but uh, what, what are your thoughts? Right, and, and what that, you know, that was my first thought when I looked and saw, oh gosh, 40, 48% don't know. Um, that's one suggestion that we teach, not just for sepsis, but to for um, just understanding what records are vulnerable within your facility is to work with your denials department and your denial staff to understand what's being denied and why, whether it's for medical necessity, clinical validation. Um, you know, so when I look at this and I see 48% are not sure, my thought is if they knew the answer, we would probably have a higher um, rating in that top column of yes, it's a problem. Um, I may be wrong in that interpretation. Um, what I'm finding from most people that I talk to, they're having more problems with private payers than they are with the recovery and au recovery auditors. Um, but those recovery audit contractors, um, I have heard in some areas, are also denying based on SEP3. So I think it would be helpful for those people that clicked off that not sure to maybe ask some questions at their organization and find out so that when you're looking at the records, you can prepare those records and make them as strong and defensible as possible proactively versus having to fight it on the backside. Right. Well, good stuff there. Well, again, we'll uh, go ahead and close that poll out, but thanks for folks for taking that. Um, all right, at this point, I am gonna go to our In the News uh, segment of the show. Uh, In the News is a regular segment featuring the latest news and industry updates relevant to the CDI profession. Today I'd like to discuss a recent article which you should be seeing on your uh, screen now from Medscape.com, uh, Emergency Physicians Pushback Against Anthem ED Policy. So you can read the article here again as I always do I will put a link to this uh, in the show notes at the conclusion of the program um, but I will summarize here for you uh, basically, uh, ASAP, or the American College of Emergency Physicians, is stepping up its opposition to a policy instituted in three states by Anthem Incorporated, saying that it inhibits people from seeking emergency care and violates the prudent layperson standard, which is, you know, would a non-clinician um, see this as a potential life-threatening condition? Uh, that's sort of the summary of the prudent layperson standard. but. Going back to the article, uh, health insurance companies are scaring people away from emergency departments saying they will decide after the fact what is a real emergency, said ASEP President Rebecca Parker, MD. Uh, links to her statement here. 
Um, also from the article, you know, it reiterates that Anthem in 2015, Anthem, for those that many of you probably know, are one of the nation's biggest insurers. They cover 40 million people. Uh, in 2015, they instituted a new policy in Kentucky for all of its insured, including large groups, individuals, preferred provider organizations or PPOs, health maintenance organizations, HMOs, and other plans. They said it would review ED claims that appeared to have non-urgent diagnoses and deny payment for those determined to be non-urgent. Uh, the policy is now in effect for Missouri for all plans in Georgia for individuals. Anthem is instituting the same policy in Indiana starting in 2018, so in a few months, and may expand it to some of its 11 other state markets. Companies still evaluating what markets we may bring this program to and don't have any specific timeline. There's an um, Anthem spokesperson that mentions this in the article. Um, really interesting article, I thought. Um, it's a pretty detailed two-page article here. Uh, talks about this, uh, according to ASAP Anthem's secret list, which it will not share, that contains 2,000 diagnoses that can be rejected as non-urgent, leaving the patient to foot the bill. Um, really a Really a big problem. I mean, it, this really boils down to an insurer denying claims, but in a non-transparent way, uh, even though they do later on in the article say they have run this past some, some folks for review uh, based on its own perception of non-urgent diagnoses. Obviously, this is causing much distress and controversy. I point out that even the RAC program has a published scope of work. Uh, this one, to me, appears to be rather arbitrary and non-transparent, and, and especially this is jarring in an age where hospitals, nonprofit, for-profit are being pushed to be transparent in their quality of care and their own charges. You would think that insurance companies will be held to the same standards. Now, just before I, I'm not thinking I'm just bashing at them, you know, they 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 do the article does state that you know, we, and we know that many folks. Uh, the ED is the is the easy way for them to get care. Um, they, they go in because they have what they feel is an urgent problem. And Anthem is suggesting that you know perhaps a, a phone call to a, their um, provider, their their uh, their their uh, physician would help perhaps turn away some of these and drive down the cost of healthcare nationally. Um, obviously, this is, um, I'm sure they're paying a lot of money in claims. They're, they're deflecting the argument back on trying to drive down health care costs. There's two sides to every story, but this one, um, you know, to me, is, 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 a, is, a, is difficult to get behind Anthem on this one. Um, there is a number of really interesting comments, too, if you're interested from um, physicians and other users of the Medscape website that, are, that reveal, uh, shed more light on this issue. So would recommend you checking it out if you're in one of those states, maybe where you're dealing with this. Uh, we'll, we'll be following this story and, and uh, ASEP's work to try to um, oppose this policy. But uh, do you have any comments at all, uh, Laurie, on this article? Well, you know, I, I will take Anthem's side that, you know, a lot of people seek care in an ED when they really don't need it. I think it would be more defensible, though, if they shared their secret list of diagnoses and conditions right and um you know put forth efforts to educate their beneficiaries on better choices for healthcare because it it sets the hospitals up the ED has to by law accept these people and see them so you know the the hospital 
is also going to lose payment because these patients, if it's self-pay, depending on what's done, um, may not be able to pay those bills. So, you know, I, I think hospitals and insurance companies can work together a little in my utopia world. Um, that would be helpful. But we also do see hospitals now that op are opening up their own urgent care next to their emergency rooms. So, you know, if the hospital could expect what would be denied and what wouldn't and, and assess the patient appropriately in the triage area, maybe they could be funneled to the urgent care facility versus the actual emergency department. And I think the, the providers would be happy with that as well, because an ED provider doesn't necessarily want to see a patient for a non-emergent condition. So I think, I think working together and being transparent would make it a, a better problem to be solved. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Laurie. I think the issue is not necessarily they're trying to cut down on emergency department use for folks that maybe maybe do or do not belong there, but just that this diagnosis list should be very transparent and available for folks to, to review. So again, more to come there, but um, thought that was an interesting story worth sharing. All right, we'll, we will wrap up here with our Actus update. Again, Actus update is a regular feature bringing you the latest updates and news on what's going on inside of Actus. Today, I'd like to announce a couple announcements regarding our 11th annual conference. So this will be held May 21 and through the 24th in beautiful San Antonio, Texas. Folks may recall we were there in 2015. Uh, we're coming back to San Antonio. Uh, we're in a brand new spot, again, still right on the Riverwalk. It's still the Henry B. Gonzalez, but they have uh, demolished that building and built in a brand new convention center. So really excited about that. Um, I'm going to just pull up a quick story here. Whoops. There we go. Um, we're, uh, this year, we've added a sixth track to the conference that we're dedicating to pediatrics, which is really cool. We've tried to accommodate the peds folks um, in various single sessions here and there throughout the program. We're dedicating a track to that. Uh, we've also added a optional closing night uh, awards reception on the evening of May 23rd. Uh, that can be purchased separately, but for a small fee of $25. Um, all attendees, of course, get free admission to our opening reception, as always, on May 21, as well as attendance to all of our sessions, exhibits. Uh, we also serve food, uh, breakfast, lunch, and breaks. Again, I mentioned it will be held in the Henry B. Gonzalez Convention Center, located adjacent to the scenic San Antonio Riverwalk. You know, speaking of the conference, we have a poll up right now. We're about to close it, but for the rest of the day, if, if folks want to take this, the Actus Advisory Board, of which folks like Laurie and Sam are a part, um, are going to be doing a panel session at the program, at the conference, uh, as in one of the tracks. We're looking for folks to weigh in with their thoughts and opinions on what this panel might cover. Uh, we're considering maybe a stump the Q, stump the Actus Advisory Board Q&A panel, um, or we would be willing to do maybe a more formal panel, maybe covering some of the guidance we've put out, like our white papers and position papers, or uh, we're looking for your input on that. So if you go to our website and you find this article, you will find a link to a short survey. It's only a four question survey. So get you in and out of there, and this would really help us formulate uh, the best panel to put in front of you at the uh, Actus Conference. 
Finally, I did want to mention if you are interested, uh, we're interested in today's topic uh, on sepsis. We're having a special uh, pediatric sepsis webinar on November 9th, so very different uh, from what we talked about today. This is really will be focused on the, uh, the peds population. Um, if you're interested, uh, that show, again, will be debuting on uh, November 9th, and that is available for, for purchase now. This is a full 90-minute uh, program with slides, et cetera, uh, and specific to the peds population. But check that out. That'll be in our, um, our CDI Strategies newsletter. All right. Well, with that, we're going to go ahead and uh, wrap up today's show. Again, I want to thank Sam Antonios for being on. I know he had to drop early, but hopefully he shared um, he shared quite a bit of information that I hope you found helpful. Um, thanks to Laurie again for co-hosting. We're going to be back as we always are in two weeks for our next program. This one should be fun. We'll, it'll be on Wednesday, November 8th, and we're going to dip into the mailbag, not a literal mailbag, probably more <laughs> of my e email inbox, but we're going to be taking some listener questions. And we've got uh, an old, uh, and, uh, not an old, well, an old long, I'd say a long time uh, guest on the show, uh, Dr. James Kennedy will be joining us for that, as well, Laurie, as your, your compadre, um, Alan Frady, to weigh in on some of these questions we've received that I thought were interesting, but maybe weren't worthy of a whole show. We're going to hit some of those, and um, hopefully that will help be of help to a broad range of our listeners. So that will do it. If you yeah. have any questions or yeah I'm, I'm excited about that one um <laughs> just for folks if you have any suggestions future guests ideas about the format of the show you know where to get me it's at bmurphy at actus.org well that will do it for today's actus radio we'll see you again in two weeks and uh, take care everyone bye guys